Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help you bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and just figure out life. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our Young Adult Services, or at our General Services, Saturdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, you guys, the Young Adults. We haven't met. My name is Matt. It's so excited you're here. And uh, tonight we launched a brand new series entitled Hot Topics. And uh, the kind of subheading under that is Conversations on Controversy. If you know me, I love getting into conversations with people. Not like yelling, because I don't think that helps much. But I, uh, uh, I'm excited about what you're going to be doing over the next six long weeks. Now, over those next six long weeks, here's what we're going to attempt to do together. We're going to go through six tough moral issues week by week and um, that I think Christians and non-Christians think often about and have perspectives and views on it. Now we're going to work to answer each topic scientifically, historically, philosophically, and uh, yeah, even with a theological framework. Now here's my prayer, whether it be tonight or in weeks to come, that there'll be people that walk through the doors of this warehouse that have differing views than I have. And so if you aren't a Christian, you have differing views on any of the six topics we're going to talk about over the next six weeks, I'm excited you're here, you're welcome here, and I'd love love to uh, challenge what I'm talking about, right? I'm not the smartest guy in the room, just the guy with the mic, so you're forced to listen to me, but, um, but we're going uh, to work to answer some pretty um, important topics over the next handful of weeks. Now, um, I'm going to be upfront with you. The Bible, for not every single week, is going to be our main authority, which is kind of weird for me to say as a pastor, because I believe that this is the very Word of God inspired by Him and uh, speaks with the highest authority uh, that there possibly could be. But if you are not a Christian and you're in this room or, uh, or, whenever, or you're listening on our podcast currently, whatever it may be, um, you don't look to the Bible as a source of authority. You're like, who cares about this old dusty book that was written thousands of years ago, right? I don't look to it to answer ontological-sized questions, uh, uh, maybe even worldview-framing questions like origins and destiny, meaning and morality, uh, truth, God, uh, etc., all that type of stuff. And so um, the reason that we're going to work to answer these uh, scientifically and historically is because, again, if you're not a Christian, you don't look at this as a book, as, as a resource that is um, authoritative, speaks in to your life. Now, uh, here is kind of the opening question I want to give you guys a chance to discuss and talk. What are some of the controversial topics of today, right? So what are some of the controversial topics of today? Don't, you know, get in fistfights with the people at your table or couch, but I'm going to give you 30 seconds, turn, discuss, ready, set, go. Here's the deal. Tonight, I got a, I got a question. Like, are you going to text in questions? Um, if you've been around young adults, you know we kind of do that. Um, you're not doing discussion groups tonight, and uh, you're not texting in questions. Here's why. Some of these issues are going to be so... Uh uh, emotionally charging, and you're going to hate some of my answers. And so I don't want to have you text in an answer and me answer it generally. I want you to come up and talk to me so I can build a relationship with you and answer and explain why I believe what I believe instead of just making myself kind of a pastor on a stage that's not approachable or whatever it is. So uh, anything I say tonight, if you have questions you want to critique, um, uh, come talk to me. Again, not the smartest guy, just the guy with the mic. All right. So what are some uh, common uh, kind of controversial issues in today's kind of climate culture world, whatever it is, MAGA hats and whatever, like what, what is it, right? Gun rights. Yeah, 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 100%. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's got an opinion on guns, right? Um, perfect. Anyone else? Gender. Gender. Like, what is that? All right. Uh, emasculating modern masculating. Masculating. You say modern? Oh, yeah. Okay. Emasculating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyone else? Like surgically castrating or like emotionally restricting? Mm. Yeah. Oh, toxic masculine. There you go. Ryder. God. God. Yeah, 100%. Right? That whole, that whole thing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Anyone else? Abortion, Abortion? yeah. Anyone else? 
Marriage. Yeah, what is, what is marriage, right? Who, who gets to define it? Do we get to discover it? Or is it something that we have the authority to define? We're going to talk about that in weeks to come, not tonight, but politics. What about politics? All everything about it, right? A two-party system doesn't really create great conversation. Anyone else? Free speech. Yeah, absolutely. Mass. I was waiting for that. What about vaccines, people? Have you just not come? You remember that? Um, Or currently, you remember that? Uh, Anyone else? COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, perfect. All right, yeah, so there are tons of kind of of controversial issues, and uh, we're not going to be able to uh, discuss all of them in six weeks. We're going to take one issue week by week, go through them. All right, so uh, I'll be up front with you. I've got a lot of pages today, um, and uh, we're going to buckle up. Here we go. All right, so there's one question that we need to ask ourselves before we hop into any controversial topic and issue. So I want you today to be mindful of this question and honestly ask this important question. Here's the question. Am I interested I don't know if I have a slide for this. Am I interested in what is true and right or what is popular and pleasurable? I'm going to say it again. Am I interested? Am, are you, am I interested in what's true and right or what is popular and pleasurable? It's kind of a weird question, right? But I've learned in my time as a pastor, I get the privilege of sitting with people over coffee just like this. Oh, this is really good. You guys get some later. Um, you guys see the bacon donuts, by the way, back there? Was that Brandy? Was that you? Brilliant. All right. Um, there's bacon donuts. I don't even know. Um, so I've had the privilege of sitting with tons of people over the, uh, you know, times that I've been a pastor and uh, going to Pete's Coffee, Starbucks, whatever it is. And uh, I've realized that as I get to talk with people about tough moral issues uh, or truth just in general, that I've rarely encountered someone who was really interested in doing what is right. Now I want to like pause because that's a powerful thing that I just said. Now, sure, most people often classify themselves as righteous or maybe morally virtuous in some sense of the way, but as you sit and as you talk with people, it's going to become obvious quickly that they are more concerned with views that are popular and pleasurable than they are about ones that are good and truthful. Most people give you reasons, right? In fact, they may may even have convinced themselves that they have an authentic interest in what is morally right and just. However, When you confront their bad ideas with logic, their hearts kind of become exposed for who they really are and what they really believe as they search yonder for half-truths to kind of justify their views as they simply ignore contrary points instead of refuting and debating them. Now, soon they are stripped of the appearance of being moral as their evidence for their views quickly kind of diminish, and they become angry. And instead of confronting the beliefs and ideas, they start to confront the person who has a differing view of beliefs and ideas than themselves. And it becomes apparent in that moment really quickly that all along they didn't care about morality and truth. They cared about comfort, popularity, pleasurability, and being right because their explanations are really justifications all along. Now, this leads often to people becoming angry. And uh, they, they ultimately leave the conversation or leave the, the, the sermon that the pastor is giving, and they check out or whatever it is, still intended to, to believe or do whatever they believe in the first place because they're angry. Even though that over, over the sake of your conversation with the person at coffee or in a group setting like this where there's a pastor talking, that their ideas were kind of brought to the light and exposed for what they really were, that they were logically inconsistent, that they were faulty, and that they, didn't, they were incoherent and didn't make sense and existentially satisfying in some sense of the way. And they still are willing to believe those things, and they kind of just shut down in some sense of the way. Here's what I've learned. Most people, most people are not truth seekers, they're comfort seekers. Most people are not truth seekers, they're comfort seekers, and the truth is comfortability never, ever, ever leads to truth. Why? That's because the issue with truth is it has a high and heavy moral demand that requires that you correspond to it, not that you attempt to have truth correspond to you. 
which is what we're taught to do, which is what we're kind of brought, like in, in the modern educational system of the 21st century, we're kind of taught that you get to kind of classify, define what truth is. We've been brought up to say and believe in things like discover your truth, and then there's my truth and your truth. However, the real truth is there's only the truth, and that's an uncomfortable truth. So what is truth? Truth is that which accurately corresponds to reality. What is reality? Reality is defined as the things that, I'll say it this way, reality is defined as things as they really are. Or, for a biblical worldview, as God sees things. That's what reality is. Reality represents the objectivity of our existence. Now, the question, I'm going to give it one more time as we jump into where we're going today, because you're going to have views and perspectives on the topic that we're going in today that may differ from the one I present, and they're welcome here. The question, are you interested? Are you interested in what is true and right and what is popular and pleasurable? Here's why. People who are interested in truth, especially moral truths, are willing to allow their opinions to be formed by the evidence, not popularity or comfortability. I want you to imagine really quick with me, right? So that, by the way, everything I'm about to say today, I'm not smart enough to, or, I'm like, not at all intelligent enough to come up with. And so I've been, I've been tons of studying this, this, next, this last week, um, coming up with material for tonight. And if you want some of it, I can give it to you after. But anyways, um, imagine that, that uh, I'm in my backyard. Let's say it's four years from now. My daughter's four months old. So imagine my daughter's four years old. I'm in the backyard making, I don't know, flaming yawn or whatever it is. And, uh, uh, and I'm over at the barbecue and my, my little Noel comes over. She kind of tugs on my shirt and says, Daddy, can I kill this? Now, what is the very first question that I need to know before I can answer yes or no? What is it? Like, like, what is it, right? Once I determine, right, what's in her hand, I can answer the question appropriately. Because whenever you are talking about taking the life of something that's living, you need to ask the question, what is it? Is it our aunt? Is it an aunt? Is it our, is it our pet dog that needs to take a bath, not the barbecue, right? Like, is it the annoying next-door kid neighbor? Like, what is it, right? The key question to all of this is, what is it? Because you can't answer the question, can I kill it, without first answering an ontological size question. What is it? Tonight, we're going to be talking about a, a pretty emotionally charged issue, and that's the topic of abortion, which involves the killing and disposal of something that is alive. Now, whether it is morally right or wrong to take the life of something that is living depends upon entirely what it is. So here's the premise for today. I think I don't know if I have a slide for this or not. The premise of where we're headed today are really kind of two statements. The statements are this. Number one, if the unborn is not a human person, no defense for abortion is required, right? Like, if the, if, like, think about it. If the unborn is not a human person, no defense for abortion. Like, who cares? Kill them. Kill them all. Like, 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 it doesn't matter. However, or nevertheless, if the unborn is a human person, no defense for abortion is acceptable and okay. That's kind of where we're headed today. And so whether, whatever arguments you are on, whatever, wherever you teeter on this issue, pro-choice or pro-life, that is kind of the, the, the premise, the presupposition that we're starting from today to move forward. Now, here's, I'm going to kind of use some powerful language. We have all been brainwashed and indoctrinated to believe the issue of abortion is a really complex one. Often people interject into the narrative and conversation and discussion about this, things like unwanted children, and maybe even things like the high cost of children, because children are expensive, I can tell you firsthand. Diapers are way more expensive than I thought they'd be. Um, maybe even like some really traumatic things about the, the, the deep emotional trauma of rape and the dangers of it not being legal, causing women to uh, choose unsafe environments to get them done. Here's the truth, though. The truth is this is not a complex issue. Like, we've been brainwashed and indoctrinated to believe that the complexities of this is overwhelmingly complex. That's actually not true because it all can be cleared away with one question. All of the questions about it being expensive or whatever it may be can all be cleared away with one question. The question is, what is the nature of the unborn? That is the question. What is the nature of the unborn? 
Now, tonight I'm going to answer this question by answering two other questions that will help us answer the question, what is the nature of the unborn? And then I'm going to create a mock conversation that I often have with people and common objections from the pro-choice arguments that we're going to answer scientifically and philosophically to determine what side of this has better arguments, scientific arguments, the pro-choice side or the pro-life side. Question number one is this, the unborn body belongs to who? The first thing right, that we need to understand is the unborn is a living being separate from either of its parents. Right? In the process of reproduction of any living being, there's no beginning of life in general because there is no period, and I need to hear this, there is no period of non-life that exists in the entire biological sequence of events. I'll give you an example. The mother and father, they are alive. So are the individual sperm and egg. The zygote that's formed from their sexual union is alive. The, as the developing fetus, as it continues to develop, it is alive throughout its entire term. And then finally, a child delivered at birth is alive. So from beginning to end, there is no unbroken biological chain of events or, or, or life. See, life doesn't begin at some stage of the development. The unborn is alive at every single stage. Now you ask the question, well, how do we know this, right? Because the fact that the fetus is growing biologically proves that it's alive. In fact, biological growth is immediately evident upon conception as it starts to replicate and grow and change. See, the living thing inside the mother's womb is alive, and it's also distinctly separate from the mother. And that is because of the process of fertilization, right, when the sperm meets the egg, is there, it's called the biological singularity, right, at which a completely new being comes into existence. Right? We have 23 um, uh, uh, chromosomes from the mother's egg, and 23 of the chromosomes from the, from the father's sperm create an individual living thing that now has its own unique chromosomal fingerprint. It is genetically different and distinct now. And as the being grows, it will have separate heart waves, brain waves. In fact, it will even have a different blood type in many cases, and uh, motor autonomy. Right? It's not like the mother's brain is choosing to have their, their, their son or daughter that's in the womb to, to, to kick and things like that. It develops an entire autonomy on its own. And it will bear these measurable distinctions because the unborn actually is different from its mother from the very beginning and moment of conception. Now, from the moment of conception, the newly formed zygote is what we're called, is different from any and every other individual human cell. I need you to hear this really quick, especially if you're in the science. The difference becomes evident because it rapidly develops into a bunch of different kinds of cells. This is distinctly and, and drastically different than every other kind of human cell ever in our bodies. I'll, I'll make this simple. There's only this time in our lives in which our cells replicate different types of cells. So for example, your skin cells, always and forever, after this stage in your life, only produce skin cells. Your stem cells produce stem cells. Your muscle, tissue, your, your, your brain cells only produce what they already are. This is the only time in our lives in which our cells actually replicate different types of cells to create the anatomical structure of what it means to be a human being. See, all of these biological distinctions show us that the unborn child is unique and different from the mother, and actually that the unborn are not the mother, and they're a living being separate and distinct, and the word is domiciled in their womb, meaning they are temporarily taking residence inside the mother's body. So question number two, what kind of being is the unborn? I remember going to a village community in Africa for the very first time and uh, seeing all these houses, you know, that were made out of like mud and, and different like twigs and tree branches and things like that from the forest that was like right out their backyard, right? And it dawned on me as I was kind of like going house to house, 
Like none of them like had carved in the side of them like addresses. Like I don't imagine, I don't imagine, you know, like they had like, I don't know what they would have, like rocks, like seven, one, eight, you know. But like that's kind of what I, like, I imagined, you know. And I, it dawned on me that none of them actually have like addresses. So like Amazon's not delivering there. They don't have like a modern like, UP, like, like UPS or, or postal system or anything along those lines, right? And if you tried to find their location using Apple or Google Maps, it would be pretty challenging I mean, to do that, it would be really, really difficult. Now, in America, however, right, it's pretty easy to find anyone that you want if you just know what their address is. The address identifies your exact location. If you identify your country, then your state, then your city, and the street, and finally, your exact location by the numbers on your place of residence, right? Likewise, all biological life has been classified by a, what we call a biological address. The phone book used for this is called a taxonomy. Right? It's, a, it's a, a systematic catalog of every living organism. I think there's like 1.6 million different types of living organisms that live on our planet right here and right now. Now, it works to kind of identify the thing that any living creature is by what we'll call smaller biological classifications and categories. I know it's like a biology class. Now, if you, if you want to know what any living being is, it's called its biological address, you start with the largest category, and you work your way down. If you ever been to like Google Maps before, it like spins like the whole universe and like zooms in. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of like that's kind of like what a what what this biological pro, this taxonomical pro, pro, uh, process does. It, it begins to kind of focus in exactly what kind of thing or being that very specific thing is. So, for example, right? If you want to know what uh, the human being is, it first starts with the kingdom. There are only two types of kingdoms. Do you know what kingdoms there are? There's the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. So we are in the animal kingdom. Number two, um, it's called the phylum. Uh, it's called chordata. It means that um, uh, it's the anatomical structure of what it means. So uh, chordata is uh, we are people with vertebrae, backbones, so human beings, um, uh, lions, like things like, like kangaroos. They have vertebrae and backbones. Um, some animals don't, right? Uh, fish don't have the same anatomical structures that we have. Um, uh, birds don't. Insects don't, right? So th- that, that's what that means. The class is mammal. The order is primate. The family is hominid. The genus is homo. And the species is sapien. Now, if that's not an orientation, by the way. Now, if the unborn are at all stages of development are a separate living being, and since every living being has its own biological address, the question we need to ask is really simple. What, where does the unborn fit on the taxonomial chart of living things? Or what kind of being is it? And the answer is only one. It is a homo sapien. And if you say it isn't a human, which I've, I've had conversations with people, that it isn't a human being, you have to answer the question, what is it? Is it a dog? Is it a fish? Is it a virus, a bacteria? See, the unborn, even as a zygote, carry a, a genetic signature that identifies them as a human being. It's called DNA. Right? This DNA separates uh, uh, apart from all other living things. In fact, a close look at its DNA structure will, ve- will reveal that it, from the very beginning, as a zygote and onward, has always been a human being. The DNA structure will also indicate what kind of bodily form the being is going to take. But even at this immature stage, we will know that it is biologically human. In fact, if you took, um, let's say, 10,000 zygotes. And at the naked eye, none of us could tell which one was the person and not. But with a microscope, or if we took a little bit of its DNA structure, under the right circumstances, you could find out exactly what type of being each and every single one was. Now, under our naked eye, we can't. But with modern um, medical practices and scientific advancement, we can actually see what different zygotes actually are. In short, it means this. As the being, as it matures, it doesn't change its nature, right? It changes its form. Um, Biological growth reveals what its nature was. It doesn't be- change its nature to something new. Let me explain this maybe in two ways. Uh, in biology, there's something called the law of biogenesis. You may have heard me talk about abiogenesis before, about the Big Bang cosmology and you know, things like that, but this is a little bit different. 
Uh, the law of biogenesis in biology states two things. Number one, all life comes from pre-existent life. Number two, each being reproduces after its own kind. In short, here's what this means. is Human beings can only produce other human beings. Therefore, the offspring of two human beings is going to be a human being. Now, if you are tempted to disagree, you have to answer a difficult question. How? How do two human beings create a separate being that's not a human being, but then becomes a human being in violation of the law of biogenesis? I'll make it simple. If mom and dad are human beings, they can produce only a living being that's the same kind as they are, another human being. Now, here I've heard an objection. And the objection I've heard is that the unborn are not human, but rather a potential human. And as I sit with people and they object to me after all of this, I realize that as they're kind of dismissing the arguments that I've just given, which I think I've given two powerful and strong arguments for the full humanity of, of, of the unborn. I've given you one, it's genetic makeup and structure, and then I've given you it's bio, the, the law of biogenesis, that what could human beings reproduce? Only another human being. And it has to be that from the beginning to the end, because we can only reproduce what we actually are. But here's what I've learned. As I've realized that many people, they kind of dis- disregard the two arguments I gave, because we have a tendency to fight to be right, not what is right. Most people care about the desire to be right, and they have less of a desire to know what is right. And that's hugely problematic, especially with this issue. As I've sat with people, they've kind of shared with me this kind of objection, that an acorn isn't an oak tree. Okay, well, like, a fetus isn't a person just like an acorn isn't an oak tree. And that kind of sounds maybe intellectually satisfying until you ask maybe just a few more questions. Yes, it is true that an acorn is not an oak tree, but all that really shows is an infant is not an adult. Or that an acorn is just the immature stage and the tree is the mature stage, but both have the genetic structure of what? An oak. All you have to ask is what kind of seed is the acorn, and the only answer is it's an oak seed. So I've heard other people say, right, like, well, it doesn't look like us. You know, like, like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't look human. And the answer is, sure, they do. All human beings looked exactly like that at that stage of development, right? All human beings looked exactly like the same at that exact same of development. So the unborn looked different because at the stage of development that we're normally used to seeing with our own two physical eyes, like an infant, a newborn, uh, adolescence, and teenager, um, young adult, 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 senior citizen. It just looks a little bit different than what we are no- normally to see, uh, seeing with our own two eyes. Here's the point. Living things never look the same at one stage of development or another um, because that's what it means to develop biologically. It means to change. Uh, there's a constant change over time. That's what it means. Now, the truth is a fetus is a potential child, just like a child is a potential teenager, just like a teenager is a potential adult, and an adult is a potential senior citizen that holds an ARP card and gets discounts and goes to Costco at 10 in the morning, right? All that stuff, right? See, they're a human being regardless of their stage of maturity, right? And, and they biologically remain to be a human being, whatever. In fact, even caterpillars. Caterpillars, when they go through the chrysalis process, there's four stages of development for a caterpillar to a butterfly. Their DNA structure remains the same, even though their bodily form is completely different. Caterpillars do not have reproductive systems. Butterflies do. Caterpillars have to literally turn into this cosmic goo under a chrysalis, reform themselves as a monarch, butterfly, but their DNA structure remains 100% the same. It's wild, but their form changes. But if you were to take the blood of a caterpillar and the blood of a monarch or a butterfly, they still are in the monarch family, completely in 100%, even though their outward form changes completely. What does this all mean? 
It means that biology and the scientific laws show that the unborn at every stage of development is an individual living human being. Three things. Number one, it has the DNA of a human. Two, they are the child of humans. And three, its DNA will plot out a biological growth pattern that it will become only one thing. It will not turn into a caterpillar, a monarch or butterfly, a kangaroo it will, or an octopus. It will develop a growth pattern that looks just like a human being. Now, I've heard some people say that not all human beings are persons deserving of protections and rights. That is a slope, like that, that is a tricky place to be, right? Because it's the exact same argument that Hitler used. That's the exact same uh, argument that would allow people to enslave other human beings. That argument. They're not, they're not fully person. They're, they are three-fourths of a human being. Therefore, we can enslave them, right? Or that they, uh, that they, they are not uh, uh, ethnically pure, whatever it may be, so let's kill the Jews. Or these are the same arguments that have been used in the past to do extraordinary harm to other human beings, just like the extraordinary harm that's being done to the unborn today. So they'll say things like this. Well, it isn't a human because of its location. It is in the mother's womb. Uh, they don't look like a person. Well, it's because they're a fetus. Or they don't do what real people do because they're disabled. Well, let's kind of walk through this argument really quick. Because you have to ask, if this person has to answer the question, then what is a person? And that's a crazy place to be in. Let me walk through an argument. This argument comes from uh, a guy named uh, Scott Klusendorf. He's the uh, president of an organization called the Pro-Life Institute, where a lot of material comes from today. And uh, he's a brilliant guy. He creates a thing called the SLED argument. S stands for size. Because of the size of something, it determines the value of what it is. Now, that's, that's preposterous. I'm 5'9". If one of you guys are 5'8", am I intrinsically more valuable and in, in, in human-like than you? No, of course not. If someone is 6'1", are they more human than I am because of their size? No, of course not. The size of something does not determine what it is. Number two is L for level of development. Well, because they are completely underdeveloped, um, they're, not human, they're not a human being. Okay, what about people with mental illnesses? What about people that have some type of uh, anatomical uh, disability? Their brain didn't fully develop. Can we just go around and start killing people that have maybe autism or something along those lines? No, of course not. That would be, be an immorally evil thing to do, right? Just because somebody doesn't have the same capacities mentally as you doesn't make them less human. Uh, the next one starts for ease for environment. Because of where they are determines what they are. Well, when you change location, does it change what you are? If you walk outside of this room to become more human or less? Do you think six inches outside of a birth canal makes someone human and non-human or a person and a person? That's a tricky slope to be in because nothing biologically changes other than location. D stands for dependency. Because they are 100% dependent upon the mom, the mom can choose to terminate that life. Okay, well, man, we're dependent upon our kids. Like, I know junior high kids are still dependent upon mom, right? Like, what, <laughs> we are the only animal that doesn't get up and walk, like, six hours after we're born. Have you ever seen a giraffe be born? It's the craziest video. Uh, but, like, the thing plops out and, like, gets up and, like, starts, like, running the field. Like, you're like, what the, like, dude, my daughter can't even find her bottle. Like, she's four months, she would die in 12 hours without a human next to her, right? Like, something God is showing us about each other, by the way. Um, but D for dependency, right, is because they're fully dependent. Okay, what about people on life support? Can we just go down to the hospitals and start unplugging people? We are, children are fully dependent upon their, upon their, their mothers for a really long time, whether it be bottle or breast or whatever it may be, they're 100% dependent upon another human being. And many people are dependent upon other human beings until death do they part. So here's the real question. Can we, 
Can we deny some human beings protection because they're in the wrong location, don't look like us, and can't do what we do? I think, no, of course not. Those are logically inconsistent arguments, right? And so I've come to realize that many of the pro-choice objections and arguments drag people away and off from the most important questions regarding this topic is really irrelevant information, to be honest with you. And so here's what I'm going to do for just the remaining uh, maybe few minutes that we have together. I'm going to give you 10 arguments that I often hear and quick little rebuttals to each one of these arguments. When I'm sitting with somebody, these are one of the 10 arguments that I hear about why they, are pro, why they lean on the pro-choice side um, and why they, they're not a pro-life person. Argument number one is this. Women should have the freedom to choose. Freedom of choice depends upon what kind of choice one is making. That's simple enough. You have the freedom to choose what you're eating for dinner tonight, but you do not have the freedom to kill your two-year-old because they're inconvenient. The law should step in at certain things, right? Number two, because they're unwanted, they, should, they shouldn't come into this world. Okay, so let's just answer this question. When someone is unwanted, can we kill them? The homeless are unwanted. That's why they are homeless. Is it okay for us to just start just clobbering homeless people on the side of the road with, like, holding their sign and you just come in with your minivan? Like, is that, is that something that's morally acceptable to do because they're unwanted? No, of course not, right? That would be, that'd be tragic. Number three, it's my body, my choice. Well, if that's the case, how many fingers does a pregnant woman have? 10 or 20. How many hands does she have? Two or four. How many heads does she have? One or two. Does the pregnant woman, here's kind of a graphic question, does the pregnant woman, if she's carrying a male for nine months, have a penis? or two vaginas if she's carrying a female for nine months? Answer is one and no, right? Argument four. Well, because they're in my body, temporarily they are mine. Here are two graphic, really graphic statements. When a woman is having sex, is the guy a part of her body or is he a whole separate human being? The answer is two separate whole human beings. When a woman is at the gynecologist and they're performing an annual checkup, is the gynecologist and the woman one person or two separate and whole human beings? The answer is two separate and whole human beings, right? Argument five. Women should have the right to privacy with their doctors and what they do with their doctors. Well, then why does CPS exist? Child Protective Services. Child Protective Services exist because we don't allow parents to abuse their children in privacy, especially in privacy behind closed doors. That's why there are things called mandated reporters, which if you're an employer or volunteer at this church, you are a mandated reporter, right? We have been trained to look for the signs of abuse and to report them because they're done in privacy, most likely. Argument number six, many women can't afford to have a child and all the bills that come with having one. Just reword the question. Just ask questions with questions. When a human being comes expensive and costly, is it acceptable to kill them? Or does the reality of someone being a financial burden give us permission to systematically kill them? Do you know the most costliest people for the United States government and taxpayers are? People with BMIs higher than 30%, the obese. They drain the rest of our resources economically and medically. They annually, annually, $300 billion is the drain with other uh, 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 health-related issues that come from a BMI over 30. Is it okay just to start killing people that are overweight? Is that like an acceptable thing to do because they are a financial burden? to the United States of America and therefore you and I taxpayers? No, of course not, right? Argument seven. Making abortions illegal causes women to choose riskier operations and procedures that are dangerous. And ask another question. Is it our legal system's fault for making it more difficult to kill another human being? The fact that our laws make certain actions more dangerous shouldn't be a good excuse to change our laws so that evil behavior is easier to do. 
right? You've heard like back alley abortions, you know, coat hangers and you know, whatever, and other things. That doesn't seem like a good reason to change a law about making evil behavior easier to do, right? Argument eight, if you don't like abortion, just don't get one. That's like a pretty popular one you hear, right? Well, it's like, imagine someone saying 100 years ago, if you don't like slavery, just don't own a slave. If you don't like spousal or child, like, you know, uh, uh, the abuse of children, well, just don't abuse your wife or your kid. And please, God, don't vote that way, right? Is it possible, is it possible that things are morally wrong always, regardless if you personally are participating in them, yes or no? Argument nine, you're a man, you can't tell a woman what to do with her body. I normally say, well, don't assume my gender, but, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, I don't say that, <laughs> that would not go well. Um, yeah, I think, number one, I think we've proven today, right, that, 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 a, <laughs> that the child is not the woman's body. It's domiciled and taking up residency in the woman's body. And then secondly, here's, 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 secondly, we use our brains, not our reproductive organs, to digest moral issues. What genetic makeup I have should have no relevancy on moral issues here. Argument 10 is the last one. What about abortion in the case of rape? Now, this question, this question has some complexity because rape is evil, and it is devastating, and it's tragic. So I'm going to answer this with blanking and in grace, but I'm just going to ask a few questions here. Why should the child pay for the father's crime? Imagine if that happened to you and I outside the womb. Our dads did something, and they came, knocked on our door, and they said, well, you need to die. You'd be like, but he did it. <laughs> like, like, like that, you know. The real question is this, is how should we treat another human being who reminds us of a horrible, experiencing, a, a horrible experience that we were innocent in? I'll say the question again. How should we treat another human being who reminds us of a horrifying experience that we were innocent in? Recently, a young man walked the halls of Robb Elementary School in Texas, three, four weeks ago. And he took the life of 19 innocent children and two uh, adults. Now, when his mother, I couldn't, I, I watched that was happening on the news like many of us did, about the elementary school, right? And they, they, they interviewed the mother. And when the mother um, was asked what she would say to the families of the victims, here's what she said, and I'll quote her. Forgive me and forgive my son, comma. I know he had his reasons. I know he had his reasons. Then she went on to say, start talk about her son's childhood, how he grew up in a traumatic and suffering childhood where he was bullied a lot. And that's the reason that he did this and we should forgive him because of the childhood that he had. Let me ask you a question. Is experiencing trauma and suffering a good justification to kill another innocent human being? Now, as horrific as rape is, I still, I still believe that there are better and more moral options than abortion. And so let me kind of shift from the scientist biologist to more of a shepherding and pastoral heart here. Is the truth is abortion is a sin that God can and God will forgive. See, the truth is, right, is that Jesus came to restore. It's the whole reason that he came. That sin was a problem that only he himself could deal with. That he came to forgive and make us more than our mistakes and our sin, right? I mean, the cross shows us, right, that Jesus is willing to pay our debt no matter what we've done, how far we've run away from him. On the cross, we learn of a Savior who died the very same way he lived, with his arms wide open. 
like ready and willing and eager and ready to accept anyone, regardless of what their past was and what they were doing. Tonight, I don't want us to just kind of like theologically approach the cross. I want us to live in the life in which the cross affords us the privilege of living in. So what do I mean by this? Regardless if there's someone in here that has had an abortion, or regardless if there's anything in your past that you feel guilt or shame of, here's what I've learned. Many of us carry around our past like we carry around a handkerchief or an accessory, enslaving us to the guilt and shame of things that we wish we didn't say and things that we wish we didn't do, but I need you to know tonight that the cross frees you from those things. The cross is rich enough to pay for your sin as well as my sin and our guilt and my shame. See, the cross affords us a new identity. And so if you are here today and you've given your life to Jesus and you're holding on to the guilt and shame of your past, you might as well be holding on to the past of another human being. Because the Bible says that you're a new creation, that you were 100% new and forgiven, that your sin is thrown as far as the east is from the west, that is wiped from God's memory in the way that he interacts with you in the proximity of when he thinks about you. He views you through the lens of the cross. And that means that there's nothing that you could have ever do that would cause him not to forgive you, extend mercy and grace to you. And so today as we end, I want you to know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't just nail your sin to the cross. He also nailed your guilt and your shame. But it's, it's up to us to actively give that stuff over to him. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up, and they're going to lead us through one last song. During this song, I want you to think about the very love of God and the very forgiveness of God. And if you are holding on to any guilt, any shame of your past, it's in this moment that I ask that you would just ask God that you could give it over to him. And he'd recycle the guilt and shame that you have with peace and restoration and wholeness. Let me read what the book of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul wrote. It's some beautiful language that says this. I'll read this as a blessing maybe over you. They'll lead us through one last song, and then I'll come up and close this in prayer. It says this. I'm convinced that neither, that nothing can separate us from the God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that's revealed to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, today I am... I'm forever thankful that uh, you are a God of mercy. You are a God of goodness. You are a God of grace. So, Father, as we sing this next song, if there's anybody here, Lord God, that is dealing with any type of guilt or shame from their past, I pray, Lord God, that you would recycle those feelings with restoration, wholeness, and healing. So, Father, as we look to the cross today, may may it show us, God, that you're a God that is loving, that you died, like we said, the very same way that you live, with your arms wide open, ready and willing to accept anybody. And that is us. And so, Father, we ask that you would meet us in this moment. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening and have a blessed day.